Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Have you ever seen one of those posts which attempt to explain the plot line of a film really poorly? Um, maybe you've seen, I see it oftentimes on social media where someone uh, tweets or comments on a podcast and says that, that this is the description of a, a famous movie or a favorite book, but they describe it so plainly that something that's beloved is actually something that sounds really foolish. For instance, take for instance this one, see if you can tell uh, what story this is. It says, talking frog convinces son to kill his dad. That story is speaking of Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, where Yoda calls Luke to go and end Darth Vader. Or perhaps you've been enraptured by a famous film trilogy based on the books, which chronologues a group spending nine hours returning jewelry, as they describe the Lord of the Rings. And the irony of these posts is that the description, though true, sounds really dreadful and really boring. And yet they belong to two of the most beloved stories of all times in Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. So why is that? Why the discrepancy? Well, that's because the basic narrative of those plots, when stripped out of the story itself, it's bland and boring and weird. But in the context of the story, it gains all of its beauty. To think about returning a ring for nine hours sounds like something you want to spend your life avoiding. But when you find that it's Frodo uh, returning the ring of power to Mount Doom so he can destroy it and save the Shire, it becomes beautiful. And today we conclude our eight-week series walking through the story of Scripture. And by doing so, we find ourselves in Scripture's last chapter. That's the book of Revelation. And this book, just like those movies does not find its beauty in a standalone plot stripped out of the story itself, but it's actually only made beautiful and abundantly so when we understand its connection to the story that's been preceding it the whole time. The narrative, the symbolism, the language of Revelation, if you've never read it before, is often odd, maybe jarring and sometimes even confusing. But when we place it in light of God's plan to redeem his broken people through the work of Jesus Christ, That is how Revelation is the final chapter where God restores all that was lost in Eden and harmed by the the fall and sin, where God is restoring his people to his place to be in his presence. Then the whole book shines with radiant glory, weight, and immense relevance to our lives. And so today we're going to study the book of Revelation uh, in context with scripture, in context with uh, itself, and in the context of our daily lives. And as we've done through this whole series, we're going to do three things today in this study. First, we're going to survey the story. And in that, we'll see how uh, what from a flyover level is actually going on in the book of Revelation and how does it relate to that narrative of Scripture. Then we'll study the story. That's how do we study Revelation in context? How do we interpret its symbolism? How do we understand it as God designed it? And then lastly... We're going to learn to savor the savior of the story. That's where we see how Jesus is the king and the one who puts all of this together and how he calls us to worship him through it. And as we do this today, we'll see our main point is simply just this. Jesus, in the end, is God and his people, finally and forever. When we started this series in Genesis, in the Pentateuch, we saw God and his people. And now at the end of the story, we see God and his people, finally and forever. Now, before we move on, the nature of the book of Revelation is one that demands a sort of comment because there are various interpretations, all of them being inside of orthodox, historic, evangelical Christianity. In fact, if you look at the sacred Johns of church history, so to speak, you look at John Calvin, John Bunyan, Jonathan Edwards, John Piper, John MacArthur, all wonderful men, faithful pastors, theologians, each of them would have a different interpretation on what this book is saying precisely and how the timelines of this book match up to history itself. In order to teach this book, even as an overview, which is all I'm trying to do today, I too have to kind of pick a theological lane in which to, to interpret this book. And so as I preach through it, there might be things, if you've spent a lot of time studying the book of Revelation, that you differ with or maybe see differently. But this is where we can practice charity, where if each of us in submission to the Holy Spirit, in wanting to submit ourselves to God's word and not our own uh, proclivities, we can find great charity amidst diversity here. In fact, I heard one church pastor say that if you surveyed uh, his church members, that all of them 
would want to hear the book of Revelation preached. But if you surveyed a room of pastors, the one book they wouldn't want to preach is the book of Revelation. And that's because Revelation requires a sort of humility in the face of uncertain imagery and symbolism that demands a unique and kind of uh, ominous posture for the one who's preaching it. Some people, maybe you, have, a health, uh, have an unhealthy obsession with this book. Some people, maybe you, have an unhealthy fear of this book. But this book is God's word. This is good for us. We can know what's in here because God has given us his Holy Spirit and we can know it. And we don't need to fear what's in here because this is God's word and it's good for us. And so that is what we're going to endeavor to do today as we study the story together. And so to begin, our first point today is to survey the story of the book of Revelation. That's surveying the story of the book of Revelation. And if it's helpful to think about it this way, in many ways what the book of Deuteronomy is to the Old Testament, the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God, having been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, stand at the threshold of the promised land, and Moses warns them of the dangers yet to come, but also encourages them with the hope of promises that stand between them and the ultimate end of finally settling in the land and ridding the land of their enemies. The book of Revelation plays a similar role to the church. Having been given salvation through the atonement of Jesus on the cross, the apostle John warns us of all the dangers left to come. But he also encourages us with all the hope that stands between us and glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Just as Moses warned the people in the promised land to not be complacent, so too does John. To not forget the God, the single God who saved you. To not intermix your worship of the one true God with the worship of idols. To not take up relationships that pull your heart away from God. This book calls for optimistic endurance in the face of real trials. Far from being convoluted or hidden, trying to disorient or confuse you, the book of Revelation is meant to bring the Christian hope by putting the plan and purpose of God for all things right in front of our view. He wants to bring us confidence in this book by creating confidence for us in Jesus Christ. Look at how John opens this book in Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so here we see this book has a promised blessing for for me, for the one who reads aloud, for you, the one who hears. More importantly, it ties the past work of Christ with the future work of Christ. For what? Did you see it? For the sake of today's Christian. That we would keep it today. God could so visit you with clarity through the Holy Spirit that all the events of this book and the intricate timelines of it are made crystal clear to you. And you could outline that for all of us to hear. But if that does not create in you an effect today in changing the way you follow Jesus, then you have no more studied the book of Revelation as God would intend than someone who has no understanding of God at all. God has given us this book to change our lives today in light of the gospel. And so what is the book of Revelation? Well, it's really uh, a series of visions that God gives to the Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John and other New Testament books. And there's a theater that John is in. John is taken up from the Isle of Patmos, and he's, he's in a vision transposed into this throne room of God. And from the throne room of God, we see a series of seven visions given to John, detailing all that is happening, will happen, And will continue to happen until God redeems his world. And what you'll notice in these visions is that they aren't presented in a sort of linear chronology. Which is part of why our western mind struggles to understand this and kind of irritates us a lot. And what you'll notice as you read this is John gives a series of visions. But he's not claiming that these visions happen in a chronological historical timeline succession. And so it's not he has a vision and then he has this next vision and says, and this is what happens next in the end. Instead he says... And then I had another vision. And so the chronology is just the chronology in which he has these visions. He's not saying these are the order of events. It's just the order of the visions he had. And so it's helpful to think of it. If it's helpful, you can think of it this way. Instead of seeing the book of Revelation as a line moving from point one to point two, think of it instead as a spiral 
that moves from point A to point B. And each time around, it's a little bit different, but we're all circling with a bit more clarity and a bit more perspective until we reach the end where all things are crystal clear. And this is what is clear by the end. God will judge the world and God will save his church. But it's often amidst and through this judgment that the church is saved and vindicated. And so to help frame our thoughts on this idea of salvation and judgment and visions, I want to give us just a brief outline of the book of Revelation. If you're a note taker, this will be available online on the manuscripts. But here, if there's six movements of the book of Revelation, here they are. It begins first as John receives a letter from Jesus himself, uh, seven letters written to seven churches in the area of Asia. So these are churches that John knew that are concurrent with him in history. And Jesus gives John a word to present to each of those churches. That's the first movement. And then John's visions continue from there. And so the second movement is John's first vision. And he sees a vision of seven seals. That's a letter that's been sealed like with a wax signet ring. And these seals are opened by Jesus in the throne room. And the image of sealing and unsealing here communicates that what has happened and what will happen only happens as Jesus intentionally, purposefully, and in his perfect time opens that seal. In other words, what's left to come in the course of redemptive history is not up to chance. It's not randomly happening. It happens only at the hand of Jesus. Jesus is in control of each stage left to come. Third, we see a vision of seven trumpets. And the idea of the trumpet, the metaphor, communicates God's warning and alert to all who would listen. Just as a trumpet wakes you up in the morning, if you're in the military, if you're alive in different parts of history, this is meant to wake you up. The trumpet's sounding. We sang that earlier. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall... We didn't sing that. We should have. Johnny, get with it. Um, There's still time. We have two more songs left. Fourth... There's a brief narrative type of prophecy, and so it's a little different. It's not written in prophetic form. It's kind of this narrative of imagery that depicts a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil. Fifth, John sees a vision of seven bowls full of seven plagues, which represent the comprehensive final judgment, which will one day be poured out on the world. And then sixth and finally, we see another comparison. And this is a comparison between Babylon It's what Johnny just read for us, between Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Babylon representing the hope of the world and the New Jerusalem representing the hope of the church. Where Babylon and all who hope in her and dwell in her are destroyed by God's just judgment, the church of Jesus, by merit of the blood of Christ, gets to live in a new Jerusalem, in a new heaven and a new earth, in perfect glory for all eternity. In summary, the story of the book of Revelation is the story of the trial and triumph of the church through the blood of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. The trial and triumph of the church through the blood of Jesus, the lamb who was slain. That's the survey of the story. Now, how do we study it? Move into our second point today. Let's begin to study the story. And excuse me, there's three things I want to do in this portion to help us with this book. And the first is, I want to explain to us how we read the book of Revelation in other apocalyptic literature. Then I want to discuss what we need to read. What do we need when we read the book of Revelation in other apocalyptic literature? And finally, we'll discuss the way in which Revelation progresses these three Ps, the people, place, and presence of God that we've been tracking since the book of Genesis. So first, how do we read the book of Revelation in other apocalyptic literature? The word apocalyptic might summon in your minds visions of zombie films and really uh, weighty, not good, ominous things. But it's actually the very first word in Greek in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation opens apocalypsis, Yesu Christu. That is the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalyptic literature, therefore, is just revealing, revelatory literature. It's God revealing his truth, which here we already see. It's the revelation of what? Jesus Christ. That's what he's drawing our attention to. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do in this world. But the way in which he's communicating it is distinct from other ways in which God has communicated. In our study through the book of 
the book of the Bible, uh, through the whole Bible, we've actually run into apocalyptic literature. It's in Daniel, it's in Ezekiel, it's some in Jeremiah. Jesus actually uses a lot of apocalyptic literature when he talks about the days yet to come in the Gospels. We'll get into that when we begin Luke again next week. And what's interesting here is that we interpret it differently than when we read poetry or narrative or history because it's a different type of revelation. It's a different revealing. And the principle for interpreting this kind of literature is that we focus not so much on the strict definition of each word, but instead we focus on the holistic effect of the vision. To apply the same style of interpretation to, this, to the symbols in this book, as you did if you were reading, say, the book of First Kings or something like that, would be just as frustrating and out of place for you to think that when you go to an art museum, that you encounter that art in the same way you encounter reading a history book. It's different. For instance, I could spend uh, six paragraphs telling you about the nature, the smile, the clothes, the attitude, and the background of a bad guy. And we could read it. We could interpret it. Or a composer could introduce him by saying, Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. What do we know? He's bad. <laughs> no words have been given, but the effect of it is really clear. And that's what these images are meant to do. It's like the film score that tells us because of what we feel in it, we feel rightly in this book by the words that were given, and we take away this effect that God is desiring to produce in us. And it's important to remember, God didn't get sloppy in his communication here. It's not that God speaks with crystal clear articulation and all the aspects, and then he gets a little tired. He's writing the whole Bible, right? He gets a little tired. He's like, it's going to be like the thing and the cum and the woman out of the lake, and there's the smoke. Yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll resume tomorrow. This is intentional. God is intentionally revealing his truth in a distinct and different way. One commentator says that the book of Revelation is not God's puzzle book. It's God's picture book. It's something we're meant to put up on the wall and stand back and say, wow, this is a weighty and powerful thing that God is doing. But we do study it. We are to engage in this in wisdom. And so how do we do that? Well, it means first that we don't engage it in an exclusively literal sense. Unless you think that Jesus for all eternity is going to have a sword continually proceeding from his mouth or horns upon his head, we realize there's limits to how we literally interpret this text. But also, we can't simply say it's a fairy tale, that this is symbolic of just the ethos of the world. No, this connects with and is representative of real history and real events yet to come. So we find this middle ground of reading and dissecting the words in a right framework of interpretation. Now, what's interesting is you'll read, and sometimes we'll get panicked about these visions, and we don't know what it is, and we wonder, are we reading this book rightly? If God wants you to know a vision, he'll tell you. Oftentimes, there's this angelic messenger inserted in Daniel or in Revelation, and he comes to the person receiving the vision, and he can kind of see maybe like your eyes are right now. Like just wide open, like, listen, listen, I'm going to make this easy for you. You see the beast? That's what it means. See the flaming thing? That's what we're talking about. So just take a chill pill. This is what the vision is, and, and you know it now. If God wants you to know in clarity what the vision is about, he's going to tell you. Why? Because God wants to communicate. Again, he's not veiling his communication. He's communicating for a different end here, the end of effects. Now, one small piece of information that helps us in our interpretation is to just understand, because we're really removed from not only apocalyptic literature, but Hebrew literature, some things that John's original audience would have taken for granted as they read this, and it has to do with specific numbers. Stemming from God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world in seven days, and that number came to symbolize often a sense of perfection. Sometimes when we're reading in a, in a narrative, this is where our different interpretation rules apply. When you're reading in a narrative and it says that, you know, there were seven men gathered, it's probably just because there were seven men gathered. But when you're reading in poetic or apocalyptic literature, that number seven is meant to communicate just as God's whole creation, a sense of wholeness, fullness, and perfection. That's why most commentators think, and when we open up the book of Revelation, we see seven spirits in the throne room, that those seven spirits are representative of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. There are seven seals depicting the fullness of church history. 
There are seven trumpets communicating a complete warning. What more warning do we need? None. This is complete. Seven bowls of wrath. There's nothing left on the table. God will judge finally, perfectly, and fully. And understanding this helps us encounter other numbers in the book. For instance, there are three primary antagonists in the book. There is the devil, who is called the great serpent. There's the beast, who is often called um, the Antichrist. That's, not, that's kind of what we call him. That language isn't clear here, um, but it's, it's meaningful because of what we'll talk about in a minute. And then there's a second beast that's often called the false prophet. And so the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are kind of these three spiritual boogeymen in the book of Revelation. And what you'll notice is that Satan is manifesting himself to the, to the people in the world not only as an Antichrist, but as an anti-trinity. Where there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, here is the serpent, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And when you read in Revelation 13, notice how similar the roles are to the role of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And yet they are entirely counterfeit. This helps us understand the number of the beast, which maybe you've heard of. The number is 666. I filled up with gas the other day. My total ended $16.66 on the week I preached Revelation. What does that mean? It means that today in six minutes and 66... No. So, so how do we interpret this number? We interpret this number because if the fullness of perfection in God's trinity are three people and the sense of sevens communicates fullness, then the number of God is 777. And the number of this false, manipulative, anti-trinity, this three would then be 666. What is Satan trying to do? He's trying to show you that he's trying to dupe the whole world into thinking that he has the salvation, the glory, and the blessing from God. It might not look as clear as the other, but it's pretty good. But what do we see? It's nothing. It's a sham. Only full salvation is in Jesus. However, there's another way we could interpret this. In Hebrew numerology, the number 666 corresponds with the value of Nero Caesar. And when you look at church history and you read what Nero Caesar did shortly after John was writing and during John was writing this, much of what the beast and these evil things did or were said to do in the book of Revelation are exactly what Nero did in the church. So which is it? I think it could be both. I think that's the beauty of how God is revealing himself in Scripture. But this is why we engage in the study of this book with humility and with charity. Because whether it is in the false promise of Satan or in Nero, we know that endurance is not for those who hope in Nero, not for those who hope in Satan, but for those who hope and worship the lamb who was slain. So secondly... What do we need to read the book of Revelation? So we looked at how we interpret symbolism in Revelation, some helpful things there. But what do we need to read it? What do you need to read the book of Revelation? Well, when I was growing up, I don't know if many of you shared this, is there was one guy whose hair never matched the color of his mustache. And he had indicated clearly all the timelines yet to come and gave a date as to when these things would happen. He was wrong. But here's the thing. Just about every era of church history has had sincere men and women come to those same conclusions, and they were wrong. And it's a good desire that we would want to know. God gave this to us so that we would want to know. But in order for us to understand this book fully, in order for us to be properly warned, in order for us to receive the blessing that was promised, in order for us to live distinctly and keep this word, to live urgently and faithfully in our time, we do not need a newspaper in hand. We need a Bible in hand. This is all God has given to us. This is sufficient for us to read this well. John's source material for everything we encounter in the book of Revelation is not the geopolitical landscape. It's the revelation of the God of Scripture. The more we read the Bible, the more we understand the effect and the intent of the book of Revelation. I'm going to give us three quick examples of that. First, notice again in Revelation chapter 1, John's greeting to the churches. Uh, Revelation 1, 6. Uh, So I'm going to begin in the second half of verse 5. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to God and to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so, whether you know it or not, this is a big ringing of a bell. 
Remember, if you would, what God communicated back in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, after he brought Moses out of slavery and God's people out of Egypt. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 5 and 6 of Exodus. This is God speaking to Moses. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So how is John rooting our understanding of the book of Revelation? In the reality that Jesus has finally done it. Where in Exodus 19, what is God saying? He's saying, Moses, if your people keep this, if you keep this, if you fulfill this, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. But what did we just see in Revelation chapter 1? It says that God has made them to be a kingdom of priests. Jesus has done it. Jesus has fulfilled the full process of being redeemed from slavery, not by entrusting part of it to us, but by doing all of it in and of himself. He has made us God's covenant people through faith, redeeming us finally and fully where the law was just a placeholder. We see this fully in the new heavens and the new earth that are presented later on in the book of Revelation. And this this kingdom comes down. It's got 12 gates and 12 foundations. On the 12 gates, each gate gets a name of a tribe. And on the 12 foundations, each foundation gets a name of the apostle. What's the point? In Jesus, the whole story comes together. In Jesus, in that one promise made to Abraham is salvation for the Jews who hope in the promise and for the Gentiles who hope in the promised God of Israel. Here, not two gospels, not two salvations. In this one promise, salvation flows through Jesus Christ. Second, John pulls often from other prophets that we've read, and this helps us locate ourselves in terms of what's going on and what the effect, again, we're after that effect, that dun-dun-dun-dun, what's the effect this is having on us? Do you remember the vision? We actually looked at this vision a few weeks ago that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. There's a vision of a statue made with six different materials, and then because God wanted us to have clarity. He goes ahead and he tells Daniel exactly what these six things are. And Daniel tells it to Nebuchadnezzar. They represent these six epochs or kingdoms that would come after Nebuchadnezzar. But at one point, a stone cut without a hand is going to come and dash the feet of that that statue. And that statue is going to come crumbling down. And do you remember what the feet of that statue were made out of in Daniel chapter 2? Daniel chapter 2, verses 32 through 33. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so here we see this issue. There's this big, strong statue, but its feet are not solid. And when the rock hits it, it strikes the feet and the whole thing falls over. The hope of nations is not strong. But then notice how John introduces Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one standing like a son of man. That's exactly this sobering, stabilizing vision Daniel has in chapter 10, where amidst all of the nations yet to come, he has this vision of this son of man who will reign from the ancient of days. Here's that word, that phrase right here. This is that son of man, Daniel's son of man, clothed with a long robe with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. What do we see here? The kingdom with strong feet. Here is Jesus whose foundation is like bronze. Here is the stone that was cut without hand, that will grow into the mountain of God. Here is Jesus Christ, the one who after all the geopolitical contours of history have happened, here is the one who says from here on out, there is one kingdom and one king. Here is the hope of all who live under the burden of human leaders. Third, notice this language in Revelation 
chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. This is in the part of John where we see the contrast between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So does this story ring any bells to you? Here's a woman who has a child, who will be king, who will rule the world, who's opposed by a dragon serpent. Do you remember what was read earlier? We read the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And when Jesus, or when God spoke to Adam and Eve, he cursed Adam and Eve, and he cursed the serpent. But do you remember there's this glimmer of hope in Genesis 3.15, where God says this to Eve. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. So he's speaking to the serpent here. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what did we just see? We saw the birth the offspring, the seed of the woman, the serpent crusher who was born and whom the serpent tried to consume and destroy, but he was brought up by God to his throne in heaven. And here we see, after we've spent time in God's word, that Jesus came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, the seed of woman, who went to the cross and defeated sin and death. And then what happened? He was taken up to God. He ascended into heaven. He sits on the throne. But guess what? In this narrative in Revelation, the child king is removed. And the woman goes to the wilderness. And the snake turns his attention to his mother, to the church. This book outlines the battle between the church and the devil until the child king comes back again and casts the serpent and all of his minions into hell forever. This is all about God's story of redemption, about us in the wilderness waiting the return of the king. In this book, we see many themes. We see the plagues of Egypt show up. We see Isaiah's cup of wrath held out by Lady Babylon. We see just as Israel was led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night when the church is in the most confusing position of its time. Someone stands straddling the sea and the land, this messenger, which is Jesus Christ, who is wrapped in cloud and whose legs are pillars of fire, who speaks to the church and guides her on her path. Yes, we're to look wisely at our circumstances, but we are to look even more intently into God's word if we want to understand this book, to read Revelation and to turn our attention primarily to to something primarily that is not God's word, is to misread Revelation. It drives us to the source. It pushes us to the well. Now, how does the book of Revelation progress the three Ps? We saw, what do we need to read? Well, we need God's word. How do we read it? We read it in light of the symbolism that God has given to us. But how does the story fit in here? The three Ps, the people, the presence, and the place of God. I want to touch on that just really briefly here. First, the book of Revelation does show us God's people. But most importantly, it shows us that God's people must be distinct in these last days. That's a period that Peter talked about. We're in right now in Acts chapter 2. And what's really clear as you read the book is that God's people are pulled between two challenges. The first challenge is that there is always the appeal of Babylon, which represents the appeal of belonging to the world. She's always calling out like a siren seeking to kill us. But second... It appears that anyone who resists the siren's call, the sinful, sensual pull of Babylon, is persecuted by Babylon. But what's clear as we walk through these accounts of the end is that salvation is always promised to God's faithful and enduring church. 
It seems that every time judgment is about to consume the church, there's an affirmation of security and safety to those who refuse to worship anything other than the Lord, whose names are written in his book and when his name is written on their head. What's clear in the book of Revelation are these two things that we often don't like when held together. There's wonderful optimism. The greatest days of the church are yet to come. They're yet to come. And even here on this earth, God is going to save more people than we can imagine from every tongue, tribe, and nation through salvation by faith in Christ alone. And yet, as the special grace of conversion goes forward by the works of the church, it is true that the world is going to become more and more hostile to the church. And in the midst of it, we're called to endure. Notice Revelation chapter 14 verses 12 through 13, where we see this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. What does endurance and deliverance look like in this last day? It might look like enduring unto death and resting there in glory. You see, if we are not prepared to trust in Jesus in the face of hardship, then the book of Revelation paints a bleak picture for you, church. It says that you are one who has no rest. You have no offer of hope. Jesus holds us. Yes, we believe in the wonderful doctrine of God's sovereignty. But those who Jesus holds, the Holy Spirit empowers with divine strength to endure through whatever comes. This idea of enduring through suffering makes sense in the context of everything we've read in the story of Scripture. How was Noah delivered from the flood? Did he ascend on this wonderful cloud and sit and watch safely as everything happened? No. He was in the midst of it. And God delivered him through it. In Egypt, when the Passover night was coming and the angel of death was to descend on Egypt, did God grab his people, bring them to the promised land, and then send the angel? No, they had to trust in the merit of God's sacrificial lamb in the midst of it. So too it would appear that Jesus equips us for this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 29 through 30, where we see this. But he said, so he's talking about this this gathering where there's now weeds growing with the wheat. He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus himself anticipates that until the final moments of the harvest, that when we are taken up to be with the Lord, we will live as wheat amidst the weeds in a broken and dangerous world. So what warning does Revelation give us? Consider Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming the name of his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world, in the book of life, of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. How many of you have ears? Kids, do you have ears in here? You got ears? Where are your ears? Okay, what does God want you to hear? If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. What does this mean? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
We'll talk about the beast and that symbolism here in a moment. But what do we see here when it comes to enduring? The opposite is made clear. The opposite of endurance is captivity. Being taken captive by the world. Taken captive by the bright and bling of Babylon. Are you one at risk of being taken captive by the splendor of the flesh and the wonder of the world? Sexual immorality, as you read the book of Revelation, is, is representative of any form of idolatry. That's how we read it in the Old Testament too. But there's also a reality in here where sexual immorality is simply just that. One thing that comes up time and time again is how those who thought they were the Lord's saints were lured away by Babylon and her sexual immorality. That's why she's called the great harlot. She's calling others to their own destruction in the promise of sexual fulfillment. Does anyone think that might be relevant for our world today? Guess what? It was relevant to this day. It'll be relevant to every day yet to come. And this world will press this issue on you, not because it wants your peace, but because it wants your blood. I dare you to read this book and come away thinking that God does not care about your sexual ethic. Or to come away thinking that Satan does not use sexual temptation for the means of bloody destruction even though baptized in the name of peace and prosperity? Are you going to trust Jesus in the midst of this? Will you see the cup of the harlot for what it truly is, a cup of poisonous, distasteful brew, and instead restrain and refrain until Christ comes back with that wonderful chalice of pure wine at the wedding supper of the Lamb? We must be warned. We must be warned as God's people because what Revelation shows us is that this is not God's place. God's people are to be distinct in this world and redemption and forgiveness and grace help us when we fail, but do not be deceived. This is not God's place. He rules here through his Holy Spirit. Yes, he is in his church. Yes, we looked at that last week. But this place is the place of Babylon. The hope of this world is in this world. In Revelation 18, when Babylon falls, which was just read for us earlier, the world grieves. Why do they grieve? Because everything they've put their hope in has just been stamped out by the wrath of God. Everything they wanted. Everything they labored for, everything they spilled their blood for, everything they asked you to sacrifice your conscience for, all of it up in smoke forever and ever. They lived as if Babylon, her luxury and comfort would last forever, but it does not. But God's warning to his people is that we are to live here. But we are not to make our hope here. To hope in this world is to hope in something which will come crashing down on its head at the full wrath of God on account of unrighteousness. But to hope in the Lord, to hope in the sacrifice of his son, to hope in the substitution that he takes all the wrath you've deserved is to receive untouchable joy in the new heavens and the new earth, which God brings down from heaven. And lastly, we need this reminder because when it comes to the presence of God, we need to realize what Revelation says about that. God is present here, right? Through his Holy Spirit in his church, just as this is in a part God's place. But Satan also has a unique presence here. If you look at what we just read in Revelation 13, how many times do we see that this beast is given authority? He's given permission to wage war. He's given permission to conquer. Now make no mistake, as you read this book, it's almost humorous if it wasn't rooted in this dangerous, weighty call to endure. That every time Satan or his minions have authority, it's a given authority. God grants it. God gives it. God allows it. Martin Luther has a line where even the devil is God's devil. Nothing that's about to happen happens because Satan is winning. It happens because God has given for a season for the condemnation of the lost, for the salvation of the church, Satan, power, and authority in this world. Do not be deceived. The natural presence of this world is not one that drifts towards Jesus. 
This world does not naturally seek to bear you up. It seeks to bring you down. But praise to God, we have that one who straddles the sea and the shore, wrapped in cloud with pillars of fire as legs, who call out to us in our wandering, this is the way. This is the endurance of the saints. And praise God that one day the call to endure will be the world's most outdated command. That one day all who endure will have passed by the merit of the Lamb. And this is where we turn our attention this morning to our final point, to savor the Savior of the story. For most of the book, it doesn't look good for the people, it doesn't look good for the place, and that doesn't look like the presence we want. But before John gets into these terrible visions, before the course of human history finds its closure, he himself is comforted in a throne room, something we just sang of in Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I want to read that with you this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Do you see that? Even in Jesus, judgment and salvation intermix. He was slain. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll. The work of Jesus is so that we might have comfort here in this last day at all that is uncertain before us. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Remember how we just saw that threatened in Revelation chapter 13. The very same people groups that the beast was given authority over. Here, these are the Lamb's people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Exodus 19. And they shall reign on the earth. So here is this Lamb as slain. But remember, this child is taken up. He goes away. But guess what? He comes back. And what does this slain lamb child king look like when he comes back? We'll consider Revelation 19 when he has come to rescue his mother, the church, out of the wilderness. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Here it is. This is the fulfillment of what we saw. Earlier on, the, the woman of the, or the child of the woman with a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress of, wine of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The lamb who was slain is the king who will reign through judgment and for salvation. Therefore, even when Jesus' witnesses die in chapter 11, the world rejoices. Why? Because the world is opposed to the church. We should be winsome to the world. 
We should want to warm them to the truths of the gospel. But if our hope is in a warm reception by the world, we are destined to doom. Do you know if given the opportunity, every Christian on this world were to be slaughtered, the world would rejoice. And here this king comes and with him judgment and recompense. But even as Jesus' witness were killed, guess what? On the third day, they rose again. Why? Because Jesus, our brother in the flesh, was the firstborn from the dead. We rise because Jesus rose. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 24 and again in Revelation chapter 6 that the reason he has not come back yet, the reason why the king tarries is because there are more people yet to save. There are more for whom he died and the church is given through the trial and suffering to take the message of salvation to them all. And as we do it, we will be opposed. We will be persecuted. We will be killed. We will have awkward conversations. We will look like fools. And as foreign as that sounds to us today in Missoula, Montana, it is the daily bread of the church across the globe. But take heart, for we will conquer. Not by what you have done or I have done or sovereign hope will do, but by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the Lamb, before the th- or standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, it's the greatest cop out. If anyone asks you, just if an angel asks you a question, just be like, you know, okay. Um, And he says this, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robe and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How might you endure church? By the blood of the lamb and by his blood alone. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, Psalm 512. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. Why? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This is the hope, church. To be washed by this blood, to be washed by any political party, to be placed in any system of human government, in any era of human history is not sufficient. It is a false hope. It is a devil's errand. But here is everything we need to endure. Here is the motivation to reach the nations. Here we see the world is not our home. This presence that we have though now be real amongst us is not perfect. These people we have now, though many, is not yet full. But one day, by the work of the Lamb, it will be. And how do we know it? How do we know the end? Because we read it when it started. Remember God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 3 through 8. Then Abram fell on his face. Have you noticed a theme? (laughs) When people see God, we fall on our face. Whatever your view of God is, it is too small but his grace gets us there. Amen. He fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham 
For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What do we have there? We looked at it. Eight weeks ago, God's people in God's place, in God's presence. I will be your God. You will be my people. Now read with me the end of it all. Revelation 21. For those who repent, for those who endure, for those who are washed by the blood of the lamb. Revelation 21, one through eight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The fulfillment of Genesis 17. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Do not read better. Don't read better. It's not simply better. It's unfathomably new. It's beyond our wildest possibility. It is the longing of every human hope, the relief of every human pain here in the redemption with the king. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I will give the spring of water without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Could skip down to Revelation 22 now, verses, or we're going to skip to Revelation 21, verses 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth, Genesis 17, will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring it into glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it anymore nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Church, here is the place. The new Jerusalem, better than Eden, where nothing unclean will enter it again. No more beasts, no more serpents, no more liars, just saints and their kings. We will be God's people. People not in the process of sanctification, but in the perfection of it. Washed by the blood of the lamb. Once unclean, made whole by repentance through faith in the one who was slain. Cleansed, clothed in the righteous works of Jesus forever and always. Not just free from sin, but unable to sin. Can you imagine? Free to live without hindrance of sin in perfect joy and obedience to the God who is present. Did you see it? In this place, I lose my job. 
in this place, there is no more human under shepherds. No more comfort or promise of what will come. No more sun, no more light, or no more night, no more temple. Why? Because our shepherd is there. Our God is there and the lamb is our light and we can find neither spot nor shade without the presence of his love because it has been purchased by the eternal blood stain of Jesus Christ. His presence will be near as breath, as heavy as love and eternal as the very God we worship forever and always. Amen. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires water take without price and come. This is the promise of those who come to the story of God with nothing but the story of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we have not words. We have not storehouses of worship. Were they to be poured out endlessly and eternally to adequately praise you for what you've done? But what we have is by your mercy sufficient. So Lord, grant us repentance. Grant us a spirit of worship. Grant us faithful endurance by the blood of the lamb and that alone. We pray this in your name. Amen.